Let's jump into our passage for today, Exodus chapter 13. We're going to study the entire chapter of Exodus chapter 13 today. And we've entitled this sermon, Patterns, Patterns for God's People. Patterns for God's People. Children, did you know one of the easiest things to learn is a pattern? We have our seasons, right? Those are patterns. We have winter and spring and summer and fall. I mean, here in the valley, we have winter followed by less winter, followed by soon winter, followed by the middle of winter, okay? Um, but there's still seasons in that. Um, you learn patterns with the moon, right? How many of you looked up and you've seen a half moon or no moon or a full moon? That's a pattern. And the, the tides are another pattern that follow the moon. And if you live down by the ocean, you would know that there's high tide and that there's low tide. Now, those are very easy patterns, children, for you to pick up on. But even really sophisticated patterns, even really complicated patterns, people take to. At present, a chess computer can absolutely defeat any human. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, it took about 20 years for computer programmers to beat humans. And the biggest problem they had was patterns. The, they would put in front of a grandmaster, a chess master, let's say, and a sequence of 20 or 30 moves would win the game. You had to make all 20 or 30 of those moves perfectly, and you would win the game. The computer struggled and couldn't find it. But the best chess players in the world, 30 moves away, would see it instantly. Why? Because it was a pattern. Patterns are powerful. Patterns are powerful reinforcements to following God, to learning things about God. And God here in this passage of Exodus 13 gives us five patterns. Five patterns of what it's like to follow God. Now let's have a little review. We were going to take this morning in Sunday school an extended review uh, since we're diving back into Exodus after being gone from it for so long. But today, uh, we're gonna, just going to give a very quick review, and uh, maybe we'll save a longer review for next week's Sunday school class. But God's people are on the move. They've been taken out of Egypt, and they're moving across a narrow neck of land, and they're moving into this area called the Sinai Peninsula. Looking back, we find that it took 12 chapters... To say, for God to save his people out of the land, but we're going to have 28 chapters to build a nation. There were just 12 chapters to create this leader in Moses, but what we're going to run into as we move forward here are deficiencies in the people, and it's going to take 28 chapters to try to iron out some of the deficiencies of those people. In other words, Exodus follows an interesting course. It, the, the, what a lot of people think is the, the climax of the book, getting the people out of the land. That's what the book is named for, after all. That event takes place just a few chapters in. But then there's this whole rest of this book. So Exodus is not so much about getting the people out of the land, it's about getting the people out of the land and creating a nation of people who will worship the Lord. And that's what the book...
book of Exodus is about. Redeeming a worshiping people. And chapters 13 through 40 is building the worship of these people that have now been redeemed. In chapter 13, as I said, we have patterns. And these are going to be our five points. And because we're observing the Lord's table today, we do have to rush through these five points so that we make sure that we save time for uh, the Lord's table at the end. But here are the five points. If you want to write them down, you can follow along in your notes. We've got a pattern of consecration, a pattern of celebration, a pattern of guidance, a pattern of testimony, and a pattern of presence. Consecration, celebration, guidance, testimony, and presence. So let's remember those, and we'll begin first off with our pattern of consecration. As Kyle read for us this morning, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast, is is mine. Now, what Moses does here is a sort of classic wraparound. He begins with this idea of concentration, consecration. He visits another topic in the middle, and then he closes a section with another discussion of consecration. He's wrapping this discussion of worship up in the idea of consecration. So there's two sections of it, and it's a main emphasis because he's doing it at the beginning, at the end. In other words, he's bookending what he's talking about here with this notion of consecration. So in verses 9 through 16, he revisits the subject. Now, what does it mean to consecrate? When God says, consecrate to me all the firstborn, let's go down to chapter, uh, verse 9 of chapter 13. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 11. He says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you, your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. Now, he uses two different words. In verse 2, he's using the word consecrate, which means to set apart, or as we might read later in the law or in the book of Exodus, to make holy. Now, the word holy is probably one of the most misunderstood words in all of religion, in all of Christendom, in all of Judaism. Consecration, setting it apart, making it holy, doesn't make the thing itself pure or sinless or unique in some way. Well, it does make it unique, but not pure or sinless. Pure and sinless are not the ideas associated with holiness initially. Holiness means, or consecrated, means to be set apart for a special use. Set apart for a special use, or set apart for a special relationship. When husbands marry wives, they declare before God and witnesses that they are forsaking all other women for this one. This lady is holy to him. She's consecrated to him. She's set apart for him. She's different from every other woman on the planet because she is his. That's the idea. God says you're going to set apart your firstborn sons, and you're going to consecrate them to me. You're going to set them apart to me. And that's what makes them special. They're mine. He tells us in verse 12 that he uses a different word. He says, I'm going to have you consecrate them by 
passing them through. This is a religious word. It's used in 2 Kings chapter 16 to refer to a pagan ceremony. And that which passes through the fire belongs to the God who owns the fire, is the idea in pagan circles. But God changes the metaphor here. He says, they're mine. They're passing through. I own them. They're consecrated to me. They're set apart. God insists that this is done for both people and for animals. So how's this done? How do you consecrate somebody according to this passage? Well, this passage doesn't say as much about it, but later in the Bible, we're told a lot about consecration. We're told in Numbers chapter 3, for example, that children were to pay, the parents of the child for the firstborn male were to pay a five-shekel temple tax to redeem that child. They were buying the child with what it would be considered a ransom, that five-shekel piece. Did you know when Mary and Joseph showed up in the temple according to the law of the Lord, that was to redeem the child? They were paying, in their day and age, that little five-shekel tax. Maybe they had a five-shekel piece, or maybe Mary had to dig into her purse and pull out five little silver coins. We don't know. But that's what she would pay. That's what all Israelites paid. Five little silver coins. And the proceeds went into the temple to maintain the worship of Israel. If you had an animal that could be used in sacrifice, a clean animal, those would be lambs or goats or cattle, the very firstborn that came from that animal, you were to sacrifice to the Lord, according to Numbers 18, and then use that animal for a family feast. So you had a lamb that gave birth. You took the ewe lamb. You sacrificed it, and then your family got to eat that lamb, that ewe lamb, for food. The same would be true for cattle or for goats or whatnot. But what about animals that were not appropriate for um, worship? We're talking about unclean animals that you would use for work, but you wouldn't use in sacrifice, like camels or donkeys. Well, what you would do is you would then take a lamb and do the same thing. You would sacrifice the lamb and eat the lamb. And by doing this, whether it be your firstborn son, whether it be the cattle in your field, whether it be the lambs in your pasture, or the donkey that pulls your cart, you would have this indelible image that all that you had is the Lord's. And you treat it as such. You're not owners so much as stewards. We don't own our things. God owns it all. All we're doing is stewarding along, stewarding it along for his glory. And parents, right here we're told that that goes to the children as well. And here we're to consecrate our children over to the Lord and give them back to him who owns them. The purpose of this, of course, is discipleship. God says that this practice of paying a five-shekel tax or for sacrificing an animal for other animals is a mark. It, this is the word for a sign in Genesis 9.13. God says that he placed the rainbow in the sky as a sign that he would never wipe away the earth again with a and so the perpetual 
consecration of people and animals to the Lord was a mark, it was a sign, it was discipleship. So that when your son asks, Dad, why are we going again today to sacrifice this lamb just to bring it home and eat it? You were to say, son, God bought us as a people out of Egypt. And with a mighty hand, he redeemed us. He owns us. And we're returning to him what is his. And isn't God good? He doesn't make us destroy this animal. We get to bring it home and feast on it and have a wonderful family day in his memory. These were supposed to be teaching points for the family as they consecrated themselves and their belongings to the Lord. Our second pattern is a pattern of celebration, a pattern of celebration. This is the sandwich between consecration. You've got consecration, celebration, and then consecration again. Why did Moses write it like that? Well, he did it that way because he's wanting us to see that consecration and worship or consecration and celebration go hand in glove. We can't very well come in here and sing to the Lord, blessed be your name, if inside we're harboring resentment toward the Lord. To give ourselves over in celebration means before that we have to give ourselves over to the Lord so that we can begin to celebrate him, so that we can begin to worship him. And so God is drawing these things hand in glove, and God commands this feast of unleavened bread. Now, for how many of you say, that sounds familiar. Haven't we already talked about the feast of unleavened bread? Raise your hand if, you, if that went off in your mind when we read it. Did you think, maybe Pastor Greg got his chapters off? And we're reading, we're restudying something that we've already studied. Well, actually, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a point of emphasis for the Lord. He mentions it four times in the book of Exodus. Four times. We're told about this festival, which I'll explain in a second. I skipped ahead in my notes, my apologies. But this repetition occurs four times in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, verses 15 through 20. In chapter 13, verses 3 to 8, 3, 8, 23, 15, and 34, 18, God keeps bringing up to the people of Israel over and over again, I want you to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. I want you to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Oh yeah, don't forget, I want you to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Now, we might say, well, Lord, why do I need the reminder? And the Lord would say, well, two reasons. Number one, it's very important to me. If your spouse mentions something to you four times, you might conclude that that is important to them. In fact, my wife and I have learned through the years that though we have a very good relationship, husband and wife, we would not make a very good team as boss and employee, okay? I know some pastors have their wives as their secretary. I would probably wake up dead one day, okay, if Danielle was my secretary. <laughs> I, it's just, that's not the relationship we need to have. So through the years, we've just, we just don't tell each other what to do. However, sometimes it's important to communicate something to your wife or your wife to your husband that is important to them. And so we have a little code. Would you like to hear what the code is? 
we say, it is very important to me that. <laughs> and that clues, we all say, it's very important to me that. And that means whatever is about to come out is what? Very important to her. And if I say, honey, it's very important to me that, that's her clue. Okay, this isn't normal, run-of-the-mill, husband, wife, talk. this is important. And we don't violate that. We, I don't know how often we'll say that to each other, but it's not super common. But that's our way of sort of cluing to each other that something is important. When something is important to God, he repeats it. And it's very important to him that the people have this festival. What was the festival? It was pretty cool, actually. You'd have to go to Jerusalem. You were all men, all men, all men were required to travel, but most of the time they brought their families with them. And they would have an eight-day-long festival in Jerusalem. There would be a day of worship on Saturday, and then a holy day of worship the following Saturday. In between was feasting and fun and family. The city of Jerusalem would swell with all these pilgrims, people coming back into town, lots of family reunions. The unique trait of the week is that they would eat unleavened bread. Some commentators will say, well, the unleavened bread wasn't as tasty, and there was some lesson to be had in that. I don't think so. I've had some unleavened bread that was very tasty. I think it was just a way of making that week more special. Well, this was a God-ordained time of family, festivities, fun, holidays, traditions, just like the season we came off of. But God is mandating it. And so for those who are Scrooges among us, if you lived in Israel and you went bah humbug about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, somebody could say, ah, yes, but God said it four times in Exodus. So get over yourself and get to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was, it was supposed to be a wonderful time of family and worship. The symbol was God's strong hand of swift deliverance. That was the purpose of the unleavened bread. They didn't even have time to leaven their bread. And they were to celebrate how quickly and how thoroughly God redeemed his people. God here says again, what is the purpose? Well, the purpose is discipleship. And here he repeats it, and you shall say to your children, and look at verse 8 of chapter 13. Look at verse 8. It says, You shall tell your son on that day. I think you should circle that word tell and put an explanation there. It literally means to declare or to announce almost in the form of preaching. Not quite that, but it's a formal declaration. It's supposed to be a loud announcement on the day of feasting of unleavened bread when you're, I'm sure your children have asked, why do we put up the Christmas tree? Or why do we uh, always have turkey on Thanksgiving, if that's what you do? Or why, why do we do this? Why, why am I not allowed to take the cracker and the juice? These are markers that God puts into our lives to spur questions from your children so that you can announce and declare and teach what God has done for you. The third pattern of life with the Lord is a pattern of guidance. 
I want us to look in verses 17 and 18. Look down at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 13. When the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I want us to notice in these three verses that God takes full responsibility for this decision not to lead them on the shortest possible route. Look, it says, God did not lead them. And then it says, for God said. And then in verse 18, but God led. God is taking this on his shoulders. And I'm sure there were some people around them who were very well aware of the geography. And they were saying, but our, home, our homeland, the land that we're going to, is just 50 miles that way. And we can skirt along the Mediterranean Sea with its sea breezes. We're going away from it into a really arid land. We're going to talk about that land in a minute. It's not a pleasant place. And we're going to go down toward the Red Sea. The direct route, the direct route was guarded by the Philistines. It was a place where the Israelites would have definitely faced battle very quickly. Now, one thing I want us to know is that as God makes this decision to lead his people around rather than direct, is that God takes all the considerations into his mind. Perhaps you've recently had a big decision that you've had to make. And as you were weighing that decision, a bit of information came your way. And you said to yourself, now that changes everything. Or how many of you, a year after making a big decision, have said to yourself, if only I knew then what I knew now. That is never the case with God. God knows all the factors. God knows all the reasons. God knows all the strengths, all the weaknesses. God knows what lies in the future and what lay in the past. God knows all of his purposes. And God is the master calculator. And in his good grace and for reasons that are his own, he did not lead the people directly. In this case, he tells us why. He says the people will have to fight if they go that way. Now, somebody might ask, well, why didn't God just destroy the Philistines like he did the Egyptians? Why couldn't God just fight for them? Well, again, God takes all the considerations into mind. He wanted the Israelites to have to fight for their land. He wanted the Israelites to invade the land and judge the people living there. He wanted Israel to take ownership and possession. It was a test of their love for him. God took that into account. And so, while they were still young as a nation, he led them down and around. So you know, and I'm sure people traveling with him knew this, when you go down and around into the Sinai Peninsula, you are going into a trap. You're going into a trap. There's two ways in and out. One way in, one way out. Same on, on the top end, it's bottlenecked. Those bottlenecks are guarded by mountain passes. In the middle, it is impassable desert. No water at all. Very limited water. 
the watering holes that are there are well known and well guarded. To go down into that land was a dead end. And the people knew that. But you see, again, God takes all the considerations into mind. And God was leading them into a trap. He was also setting a trap. And the trap that he was setting was for Pharaoh and for his armies. And he set that trap by leading them into one. The people knew this, and they still had to trust that God was guiding them and taking every point into account. The fourth pattern that we're going to see is a pattern of testimony. A pattern of testimony. We read here very briefly that God took the bones of Moses. God took the bones of Moses. This takes us back to Genesis 50. I said bones of Moses, bones of Joseph. Sorry, I think I misspoke. Joseph was, for those of you who may not know, Joseph was one of the patriarchs. He was one of Jacob's children. He arose to be prime minister of the land of Egypt. And 400 years before this, on his deathbed, he made the Israelites promise to take his body out whenever it was they left. Joseph loved the land of Egypt. He served Pharaoh well. But in the end, it was a pilgrimage. In the end, Egypt was not his home. And he said, get me out of here and take me home. My home isn't here. And he made them promise. Now, everybody, I want you to do me a favor. When I say the Israelites took the bones of Joseph, we assume that that's in a container of some sort. On the count of three, I want you to show me with your hands about how big you envisioned that container to be. Okay? Okay? Just get it in your mind. What, what, what would I have thought coming into the, today if he said, well, we, or I've read this before. What, what, did I ha- what picture did I have in my mind, okay? Don't let anything I've said so far influence you. What, what picture would I have had coming into church today? On the count of three, ready? One, two, three. Show me with your hands. Okay, okay, most people are like this, okay? How many people are like this? Joe, okay. Joe's right, Okay. <laughs> These bone boxes were huge. They were bigger, they were made out of stone, and they were sealed, and then they had the casket inside of it. Joseph's body in Genesis 50, 26, was embalmed. He's a mummy, and he's put inside of a coffin. And then the coffin is put inside of this enormous stone box and the stone container they've they've uncovered these stone sarcophagus sarcophagi is the plural and some of them have weighed three tons let's say joseph's was abnormally small and it was only one ton okay that's a big box (laughs) and this required a fair amount of effort to move. It had to have its own cart. 
it probably had to have its own team of oxen. And there were probably special teamsters who were put in charge of transporting and, and this thing is 400 years old. So they would have thought of it as fragile. They had to care for and watch after for 40 years a one-ton stone box with a dead guy inside of it. Now, why did they do that? As a standing testament to God's faithfulness. All the people had to do was look up and see this sarcophagus getting pulled by the oxen. And they would think to themselves, 400 years ago, God made a promise to that man that he would not stay in Egypt. And here we are. We're not out of, we're not into the promised land yet, but that's where we're going. And eventually, Joseph ended up in a burial place that his father Jacob had purchased. Originally, I thought it was the cave of Machpelah, but it was, it is not. Joseph ended up in his rightful place. Another testament to God's grace. Another testament to God's faithfulness. And I couldn't help but think, when we journey with the Lord, when we sojourn with the Lord, it's a sorrowful occasion, but occasionally we're called on to bury a faithful servant of the Lord. And good people of Fellowship Bible Church, when you get the... when you really need to make it to funerals of faithful people. You really need to make it there. Because what you hear for an hour solid is people bearing testament, testimony to how faithful God was to that beloved person. And Christian people leave oddly encouraged. They're sorrowful to have lost their loved one. But they leave with fresh confidence that if God could take care of them, God can take care of me. And that was the pattern of faithfulness that God was showing Israel as they carted around that one-ton sarcophagus for 40 years. Well, there's the pattern of presence, and this is our last point of pattern for the day. We're told in chapter 13, the very end, that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. There were a few benefits, the foremost, of course, being that here's this daily visual reminder of God's abiding presence. Is God with us? Look up. There he is. And just to show you how much you need the internal abiding of the Spirit of God, seeing God physically every day was not enough for those people. They still complained. They still doubted. They still feared. Even though they could look up and see God every single day, or a visible manifestation of God, I should say. They could look up and see it. And they still had a hard time succeeding. My friends, this is why 
we can't have God just on the outside. We need God on the inside. And when we ask God to save us from our sins, he sends the spirit of adoption into our hearts, teaching us to pray, teaching us to call him Father, teaching us to fellowship with him. Jesus says it's better that he live within than that he live without. And this is evidence of that. Another benefit of this pillar of fire and pillar of smoke is that the people, for the first time, maybe in human history, could travel in large groups at night. Think about that. Being in the middle of the desert with no light at all, so dark at times you could hardly see your hand in front of your face, and they could travel at will. Now, what an advantage it would be to travel at night. Did you know in the Sinai Peninsula that average daily temps, uh, daily temperatures there routinely soar past 100 degrees? Did you know that it's full sunshine there 350 days a year? There's only rain 15 days a year. And when it rains, they don't measure it in inches. They don't measure it in centimeters. They measure it in millimeters because it gets so little rain, only 15 days a year. And you would think that being in the middle of a desert, that you would say, at least it's a dry heat, right? Oh, no. It's surrounded on three sides by the ocean. And so it is humid there. Average daily humidity of 69%. In the summer, when it's 110, humidity of 75, the heat, heat index jumps to 150 degrees. That's what it feels like. It's a real feel of 150. Now, wouldn't you rather travel at night than in the day? When it's that hot and that humid? And God, thinking of their little ones, thinking of their animals, thinking of their elderly, who could hardly travel in that sort of weather, was a presence to them even in the night, and they could travel in the coolest part of the day. And it's emphatic that his presence was perpetual. We have here in verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I think you should circle did not depart, or maybe even not, and draw an arrow to the front of the sentence, because the first word of the sentence is not not departing the pillar of fire, the cloud of the, the, what is it? The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Not departing. It wasn't departing. God was perpetually, consistently present with them. Now let's make applications. What I want you to see very briefly is that these five patterns that we've seen in Exodus 13 are patterns that we have today. These are patterns that God's people have experienced since God had people. What about the pattern of consecration? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul says, You're not your own. You're bought with a price. The Israelites had to pay five shekels. 
but we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You're consecrated by the blood of Christ. Therefore, that flesh and bones that you're sitting there with matters to God. And it should matter to you the way you treat it, the way you use it. You've been bought with a price. You're consecrated. Second, a pattern of discipleship. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, raise your children in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Notice that it doesn't say, Fathers, subcontract your wife to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, yes, your wife will, because you're working, you're out of the house a lot of the day, your wife will do a lot of that. But, just as here, it was the men who were responsible to declare to their sons that God had delivered them, so our fathers are responsible to declare God's goodness to their children. A third pattern that we still have today is God's, em- God's leading, and we need to embrace God's leading. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul is talking about some ups and downs that he had, and he said, but though my life, I I wouldn't have picked this path. God is always leading us in triumphal procession. Don't get caught looking back. Get your eyes ahead. Pursue the Lord. God is leading you. Don't get caught flat-footed saying, whatever brought me here? God did. And he led you here triumphantly. So figure out what God wants you to do now and do it. Embrace that maybe you wouldn't have picked that path. God did. And be determined to follow him in that path. After all, you're his. You've been bought with a price. Fourth, we have the perpetual presence of Christ. Hebrews 13.5. There the writer of Hebrews quotes Christ, which is interesting. We don't have this recorded in the Gospels, but he surely said it. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never, never leave you. Hear the categorical. I will never. Good days, bad days, and everything in between. Christ will never, ever leave you. He will never forsake you. And just as the Israelites could look up and see this visible manifestation of God, if you are bought with a price, if you have asked Christ to save you from your sins, you have Christ living with him. And he is abiding with you. And then last, we memorialize redemption. The Israelites had the feast of unleavened bread. And we, of course, have the Lord's Supper, which is what we're about to take. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that that he's delivering to us what he received from the Lord, that the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We celebrate what Christ did for us monthly when we take the bread and the juice 
and we remember to worship God for the redemption that he so swiftly purchased for us, that he so thoroughly purchased for us. And we have this regular reminder of God's grace, this pattern of memorializing that he builds into our sojourn as we walk with him. Do you see how God has these patterns and how these patterns have continued? Well, at this time, we're going to sing a final song, one verse of a song, rather. And if you didn't build into your schedule the need or the time to join us for the Lord's table, we would completely understand. And you might need to sneak out of here, and that's perfectly fine. But we would invite you to stay. We would invite you to memorialize the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with us and remember what he's done for us. So as I said, Nathan's going to come and lead us in a song, and after that, we'll remember the Lord by observing his table. <laughs>